Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, says that they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. These events that led up to this moment involved Jesus being betrayed by one of his closest friends. It involved a plot by powerful people to get rid of Jesus because his presence had become problematic for those who were in power. And yet, despite the wicked actions of selfish people, there was something else that was going on in the midst of all this that none of them could see. These verses tell us that Jesus was led to the place of the skull. If you ever get the chance to go to Jerusalem, you can see this place. You can see the place where Jesus, first of all, was put on trial. You can walk the paths that Jesus would have taken through the city of Jerusalem, out the city gates, to a hill outside of the city walls, which look like a skull, these rocks that look like a skull. And in Aramaic, this place is called Golgotha, which in Latin is Calvary. Jesus would have been scourged. He had been whipped. He had been beaten. He had been forced to carry his own cross through the city streets. They would have taken a meandering route to make sure that as many people as possible saw this man condemned to death because the occupying Roman forces wanted to send a message to the people that this is what happens to anyone who challenges our authority. It says in verse 18 that when they got to the place where Jesus was to be crucified, they crucified him with two men on either side, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Crucifixion was a form of execution that was reserved for the worst criminals and the lowest classes. It was designed to make the victim die publicly in a way that made them suffer as much as possible. It was a slow and humiliating death. A person would literally have their body nailed to two pieces of wood, and then that cross would be stood up in the ground, and the crucified person would hang there until they died, which usually lasted a very long time. It would take hours. In some, in some cases, it would even take days. And the way you would die through crucifixion was through asphyxiation. You would suffocate to death. The weight of your body would pull you down and make it hard to breathe. So to breathe, you would have to lift your body using the nails in your feet or in your forearms. So when, it, when you no longer had the strength to lift yourself to take a breath, that's how you would die. Sometimes people died of stress-induced heart attacks. Other people died of blood loss. And if a person took too long to die, sometimes the soldiers would speed up the process by breaking your shin bones so that you couldn't lift yourself up anymore to take a breath. Jesus was crucified between two other men. They were convicted criminals. But what was Jesus' crime? We read in verse 19 that Pilate, the Roman governor, wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This was Jesus' crime. He had claimed to be the Messiah. 
the long-awaited king of the Jews. And the Roman authorities were threatened by that. So we read in verse 23 that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And says there at the end of verse 24 that this was done to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. This is a quotation from Psalm 22. And by telling us that this was done to fulfill scripture, what John, the gospel writer, is telling us is something very important. He's telling us that what was happening as Jesus was being crucified was actually the fulfillment of what God had promised through the prophets in the scriptures for hundreds, even thousands of years prior to this. <clears throat> Standing by the cross, you read in verse 25, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Jesus' disciples had run away. They had fled for their lives, fearing that they too, like Jesus, would be arrested. And yet here are these brave women, these women who came and stood there, risking their safety, risking their lives, and they watched as Jesus was crucified. And actually there was one of Jesus' disciples who was present there as well, John the writer of this gospel. He's the only one of the disciples who came and was present there on that hill as Jesus was being crucified. And we know that because in verses 26 and 27, we read that Jesus spoke from the cross to John, asking him to watch over his mother, Mary. John then tells us in verse 28 that after this, Jesus, knowing that now all was finished, he said, again, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst this scripture reference John is making comes from Psalm 69, verse 21. Again, John wants us to understand that what was happening as Jesus was hanging on the cross, although it was terrible, although it was horrific, it was also the fulfillment of God's promise through the ages in the scriptures and through the prophets. It says in verse 29, a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was Jesus referring to when he said, It is finished? What was finished? You know, those words, it is finished. In English, that's three words. But in the original text, it's only one word. It's the word tetelestai. Now, tetelestai was what a painter would say when he put the final brush stroke on a painting, right? When he stepped back and looked at it and said, voila, it's finished. Tetelestai is what you would say when you completed a project, something that you've been working on for a long time. In our modern language, it would have been like saying, I did it. I'm done. I finished. I did it. In other words, when Jesus was on the cross, he was doing something. He was accomplishing something. And as he died, he said, it's done. I finished it. I did it. What did Jesus do? What did he accomplish by dying on this cross? Well, in order to understand what Jesus did, you have to go back 
to the ancient Hebrew scriptures in what we call the Old Testament. And what the Old Testament explains to us is that every single one of us has a problem. It's not just that there's a problem in the world. It's not just that the world has problems, but that we ourselves have a problem. Our problem is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've sinned in word and we've sinned in deed. We've sinned by doing things we ought not to have done and we have sinned by not doing the things that we should have done. We've sinned both intentionally and unintentionally. Sin is what we mean when we say nobody's perfect, right? We always say that. Nobody's perfect. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. Of course, that's true. Nobody, nobody argues with that. Nobody disagrees with that. However, the result of our sins are not only that we hurt other people and hurt ourselves, but our sins also make us unfit and unclean to be in a relationship with a holy God. And this is a problem. Because not only do our sins prevent us from having fellowship and relationship with God here and now, they also mean that we will be cut off from God for all eternity and subject to his judgment for the ways in which we have done wrong and hurt others. The only way to fix this problem was for people to make what was called atonement. Atonement for their sins. You see, atonement is what you do when you've done something wrong and you want to make it right. If you've ever hurt somebody, right, if you've done something that hurt someone else and ruined your relationship with that person, you might come up to them and say, I'm sorry, what can I do to make this right? That action of making right what you've done wrong is called atonement. Atonement is the way that guilt is removed and a broken relationship is restored. In fact, it's really interesting. The word atonement has its roots in the English language, and it's actually three words put together, which as one word describe what it does. at one -ment. Right? So two parties that were divided by something, the thing that divided them, if it is removed, then they can become one again. They can be reunited. They can be, as we would say, reconciled. And so the question is, how can we make atonement for our sins so that our broken relationship with God can be reconciled? Well, in the Old Testament, God gave his people his law to guide their lives. And in that law, he gave them a way of making atonement for their sins. And atonement, it, it involved two very important substances, blood and water. Blood and water. With water, people were instructed to wash themselves ritually and periodically in order to make themselves clean and presentable before God. And blood, because they needed to make sacrifices. See, whenever someone had sinned, they would have to bring an animal, a goat or a lamb, and they would bring it to the priest at the temple, and they would place their hand on the head of that animal. And as their hand was on the head of the animal, the priest would take a knife and he would cut the animal's throat. And that person would keep their hand placed on that animal as they felt the blood and the life flow out of that animal, and it died. And it would be very clear to that person that the reason that animal died was because of their sin. There was no other reason. If they hadn't sinned, that animal would have lived. And that animal, it hadn't died because of something it did wrong. It died because of something you did wrong. 
This picture communicated very powerfully that this is the result of sin. Sin causes death. And then the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the altar. And in this way, in this terrible, bloody way, your sins would be atoned for. That is, until you sinned again, at which time you would have to come back and go through this entire bloody process all over again. And of course, the problem is there simply aren't enough sheep in the world and there simply aren't enough priests and there aren't enough hours in the day to ever possibly make enough sacrifices to atone for all the sins of every person. And no matter how many times you wash yourself with water, you just get dirty again. That's what my kids tell me every time I tell them to take a shower. I'm just going to get dirty again. They're not wrong. They should still take a shower, but they're not wrong. So from the beginning... This was a system which was unsustainable, but it was unsustainable by design, by design. Let me show you what I mean. In Psalm 78, the writer, the psalmist, he's talking about the relationship between God and people. And here's what he says. He says, their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant, yet he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. He, being compassionate, God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. That's an interesting passage because atonement is something that the person who does the wrong action, right? The person who does wrong, that's the person who needs to make atonement, right? The person who messed up is the one who needs to make it right, they need to atone for the wrong things they've done. But here it's saying that God, because of his compassionate love, will actually be the one who will make atonement for the sins of the people. But if you look through the Bible and you ask, wait a second, when did God ever act? When did God ever do something to make atonement for the sins of the people? What you realize is that this was a prophecy it was something that hadn't happened yet at the time when these words were written. It was pointing forward to something that God had not yet done, but was going to do. And so that brings us to Jesus. The Old Testament was full of promises about how God was going to send a Savior into the world. And that Savior would actually be God himself come to save us by becoming one of us in order to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that's why throughout the Gospel of John, John wants us to see that Jesus didn't merely claim to be a good teacher. Jesus actually claimed to be God. The Jewish religious leaders didn't want to kill Jesus because Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. The Jewish religious leaders, the Jews, they wanted the king of the Jews to come. That was their greatest hope, that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, would come and overthrow the Romans. The reason the Jewish religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus is because Jesus claimed to be God. And they could not understand how this could possibly be, that Jesus, a man, was also God. And yet here on the cross, Jesus, as he is dying, as he breathes his dying breath, he says, I did it. It's done. I finished it. Tetelestai. What did he do? What did he accomplish? Look again at Psalm 78. 
Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. On the cross, as Jesus suffered and died, God was making the ultimate sacrifice to atone for our sins by giving himself. Here's how Paul the Apostle describes it in his letter to the Colossians. He says, for in him, he's speaking of Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's how Paul describes it in another letter, his letter to the Corinthians. He says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews explains it so well in chapter 10, where it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What this is telling us is that the stuff the law talked about, the stuff that the law, the stuff in the law that made atonement, right? Through washing with water, through sacrifices with blood, those were all merely foreshadowings which prepared us for and pointed us to the way in which God himself would ultimately atone for our sins. Atoning for our sins is not something, in other words, that we can do for ourselves, but it is something that God can do for us. And the message of Good Friday is that God has done it for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he loves you, he came to atone not for his own sins, but for yours and for mine. And I want you to notice one more thing. Back in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, it says in verse 31, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Right, Their legs broken in order to speed up the process of them dying. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Blood and water, the two substances by which people were cleansed and their sins atoned for. As those things came flowing out of Jesus' side as he was stabbed in the heart, it was the proof that he had really died, but it also pointed to and reminds us of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. His blood was shed in order to make atonement for our sins, in order to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so that we might be reconciled to God. And as a result, we are now able to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And John says, in verse 35, he says, He who saw it, he's speaking of himself, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. The only way for you to benefit 
from what Jesus did for you is to believe. To believe doesn't just mean that, that you believe that this happened historically. To believe in this sense means to trust in it. It means to place your hope in it and to receive this gift of what God did for you by faith. Rather than trying in vain to atone for your own sins and to save yourself, the message of Good Friday is that God loves you and he has done it for you. And the way you receive that gift is by trusting in it by faith. Friends, the message of Good Friday is that by his death, Jesus atoned for our sins so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Would you please bow your heads with me? And let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com. 